This is the Valaran Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Benjamin Carsage. I'm Chris Vaughn. I'm Aaron Smith. Let's get rolling. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Valaran Perspective. Today, we're going to be exploring a story um, about one of Aaron's experiences, actually uh, outside of the video game space, when he went to work with uh, a company called Barnes & Noble. Uh, you might be familiar with them. And so kind of want to hand it over to Aaron to... I was a, I was a barista at the Starbucks <laughs> inside of Barnes & Noble. Perfect. So we're going to hear that wonderful or coffee I, making I, story. I mastered, I mastered the frothy top for the vanilla latte. That was my claim to fame. We want to hear a lot more about that. Where, where would you start? Where would you start on this one? Oh, where would I start? Well... You know, it's the first thing that pops up into my mind was what that transition was like, because I had already spent several years working at Riot and Riot in so many ways. I mean, I had always worked since I was a kid, but Riot was my first real career job. And I started as an intern there, literally working for free, um, minus the heaps of opportunity and experience I got, which was worth more than its weight in gold. Um, and, uh, and eventually kind of worked my way up to, um, kind of like, I guess like a mid-level producer at the time, you know, we called them development managers, but at the time it was, everybody was a producer and, uh, um, you know, the reasons why I left Riot is a whole story in and of itself, but, uh, it was, uh, working at Riot was formative for me. Um, I had very strong values already when I walked in the door uh, that were very much conjoined with riots. And that was one of the main reasons that attracted me. One of the main things that attracted me to the company, <clears throat> it was like immediately apparent, like these people are my tribe, like these people share my values. And so I took so much for granted. I didn't know that there was other ways of doing stuff. And I, I can look back now and, and I see that I couldn't have been more lucky to be molded er that early on in my career by a company like Riot with the values that Riot had. Um, because so much of that now I reference every day as I determine where I want to go or how I want to lead people or you know, what solving a problem looks like. And Barnes & Noble was hugely positive and shocking for me in different ways mm. as I was exposed to a drastically different environment. Like I, I can't imagine an environment more different than riot. Mm. And so much of it, it was like, it was very much kind of like an Adam and Eve, you eat the apple and then all of a sudden you realize you're naked kind of feeling, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, I didn't realize what I was doing until I saw people doing the opposite. Like so much that was implicit to me became explicit immediately. And it was, it was a little bit of a system overload. So that, that's really definitive in the sense that that was the first set of emotional and, and personal experiences I had going to Barnes and Noble. What, what, yeah. Tell me more about that when you first arrived and what that actually, what led to that sort of like, wait, I'm seeing something like that first moment where you said, I'm seeing something and it's, so out of line with the values that I now hold dear. Yeah. Well, one of them, and, and this is something I still hold close to my heart now, and, and I think is part of the founding principles of Valarin, which is the idea that um, really embracing the customer and internalizing the product and the value around the product is core to your identity. Mm -hmm. and, and that was always something that was foundational to Riot's culture. Mm -hmm. Like we were all obsessed with League of Legends. You know what I mean? And it wasn't just like we liked playing the game, we did, but it was also that we cared so much that the game was good. Like it was, we were, we, we were obsessed with figuring out what people liked and didn't like about the game and making it better. Right. And, and, and we also felt like if we made it better for them, we were making it better for ourselves. And, and like, and I tell this story as like a joke now when I talk about my first day walking into Barnes, my first day of work on the Nook, by the way, I worked on the Nook e-reader device as a competitor to the Amazon Kindle at the time. Um, many of you may never have heard of it because it no longer exists really. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, competing with Amazon, uh, risky business. <laughs> um, but uh, I can't imagine somebody walking in and, and by my desk at Riot and seeing me playing Dota 2. Like, and, and not because somebody would have been like angry, like you traitor, but more that like it, it would have, it, it just would have been out of place. It would have been weird. Like you're here to make the best MOBA that's ever been made. Like why, like, is that, why, why would you be focused on anything else? Or like, what does it say about the product if you'd rather play something else? And if it does, and if that does say something that there's some kind of a deficit with League, what are you doing to fix that? Like, you, we all internalize such responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. But my first day walking into the BNN office, the Nook office in Palo Alto, I remember just being utterly shocked looking at people on their lunch break, reading their Kindles at their desks and just being like, and, and they didn't seem self-aware about that at all. Like they just, it was just like, well, of course I'm, I would like to enjoy a good experience reading a book on my lunch break, pull out my Kindle. I'm like, you literally work on the other device, like the device that's trying to steal market share from that thing you're reading. Like, is there any part of your brain that's asking you like why you'd rather read your Kindle than your Nook? You got the Nook for free for fuck's sake. You know what I mean? Like they, they, you, you have the best Kin, uh, uh, nook that available that was just given to you like Barnes would hand them out to their tech employees so I, I was shocked by that I was it was mm. like flabbergasting on my first day and I, I never expected it and I and I just and again it, it 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 all flooded in like to me that was like an emperor has no clothes kind of situation but they didn't what even creeped me out even more is they didn't seem to realize it like for them there it wasn't even a big deal that that was happening at all and and that was kind of my first real foray. And, and there's so much packed into that. Like one of them is just like, Hey man, look, I just work here. Why, why are you giving me a hard time, man? I just, I just come in. I got kids I'm just trying to write some code, get a paycheck. And like that mentality was shocking to me as well. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I never thought about riot as a traditional job in that way. You know what I mean? It was almost like the, Oh, I get a paycheck for this. You know, like right. every two weeks and then I, I I went in and like, I think that was so mixed up in it. You know what I mean? The the identity, your core identity at Riot was so wrapped up into the player and into the, the product. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's funny when you were talking, I was like, you, you know how my mind thinks. I'm like, oh, well, what are the justified reasons? And there's ideas like market research and like all these different things. You would occasionally see someone playing Dota 2. Well, I like Dota 2 more, but I, I try to use it as a way to, to try to make League better or whatever. And uh, for those that aren't aware, Dota 2 is an original, uh, or is a, is a mod uh, that eventually became its own product uh, that was a competitor to League of Legends, uh, produced by a different company. Uh, so when we were working yeah. at Riot, the original we Dota was a Warcraft 3 a Blizzard game modification. It was just like literally a user created content mini game on the side that was what made that whole uh, MOBA game space popular before. That's what League of Legends kind of piggybacked on that the success of that mod. yeah so so you show up you show up day one and you you look at this and you know yeah you could justify oh this is why they're using the kindle again market mm-hmm. research whatever all these different like nah, my mom sent it to me who knows um but then you the the reason you ended up giving um and, and coming to was hey I'm, I'm here to collect a paycheck i just work here mm-hmm. um how how did you come to that as a as a sort of a realization about the environment you were operating in and the, the teams you were potentially on or around and, and whatnot? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think it was probably the culmination of a lot of things because I can tell you that I came in there very starry eyed. You know what I mean? Like I came in and I was like, well, my job here is to bring change and transformation. You know, these people are hungry for agility and that's what I'm passionate about. Like every developer really cares about their job and the product. Otherwise, why would they even show up? Like that was my mentality. And um, I think I ran into a lot of situations where uh, there was a different framework for what was important and valuable to the individual and to the group. And, and I constantly saw and felt the incongruency between that and my own value system. And I started to realize over time, like, whoa, there's a whole different world out there where people 
like high paid tech workers really do just come in and they care, you know, I mean, they care just not in the same way that I did at Riot. Like it wasn't so wrapped up into their identity. Like for an example was, I remember going out to lunch with groups of people, you know, there'd be like a data guy, uh, uh, a programming gal, uh, a QA guy, and like a bunch of people that we'd go out to lunch with. And, we, and a big topic of conversation was what companies you'd worked at before. In, in Silicon Valley, there was this like mercenary sort of, and I, I don't use that term pejoratively, but there was like this mercenary mentality, which is like, oh yeah, I did a stint at Google or before this I was at Amazon and that's why they hired me because I was like, I did this cool project. And it was like really a lot of like back and forth about like kind of your resume. And, but not mm. in a like, look how awesome I am, but just like to kind of show your breadth, like the breadth of working at different companies and being sort of a figure in Silicon Valley. And it was, was, was a, that was part of the culture that I was very not used to. Whereas like at Riot, it was like, I would see veteran guys come into Riot and be like every, almost every company I worked at before this didn't even matter because this was, this was the dream the whole time. Like this mm. is what I was looking for. And, and that, and, and, and at Barnes for, for on Nook at the, the employees, there was a lot less emphasis on like, I work at Nook. It was like, Hey, we're all Silicon Valley tech workers. And right now we happen to be working on the Nook, but maybe next week we'll work on something else. Or maybe three months from now, I'll get a better offer from Facebook. Like that was just the vibe. And so it, there was much more of a like, and, and, and it actually, I, I did, I think I learned a lot about personal balance with work and, and, and the mm. risks of wrapping your own identity too much up into your work. Um, and and I, I envied them to some degree because they could they would sometimes take off at four or five o'clock and go grab a, a, a coffee with their friends and talk about other stuff other than work. And they really valued their personal relationships and what was happening outside of work more. Whereas like with Riot, it all kind of bled into one thing. Like my friends were all my coworkers. We were all working 14 hours a day. It was hardcore startup mode. Like it was almost like kind of to, to even try to piece apart the, the personal element from the work element was like damn near impossible. Mm. So, so it was from that perspective, it was the first time I was like confronted with the fact that my, my human identity and like how I saw myself was so utterly entwined with with Riot and the and League of Legends and and what and the customer and all this and the people that I worked with at Riot and all this stuff, you know. So, so what was what was that like for you? Because you know, it sounds like you've you've done some thinking about this or you did something about this back then. Um, what was that like for you? Now you're in this place and you're with people who are working a job, and they could be very good, um, but they're not they're not there for the reasons that you're used to having people around you. And now you're called to lead them. Like, what was that like kind of suddenly being present? I think that was the first time where I looked in the mirror and I didn't just see myself as an extension of my values just as, I mean, an extension of my values or of Riot as a company or the specifically, more specifically, the people that had such a positive impact on me at Riot. But also as like, hey, man, you're a professional with skills and you do stuff and that has a certain market value. And and I was like confronted with that. I never viewed myself that way. Mm. And I think I, I think I struggled a lot, actually, in those first couple of years because I didn't view that myself that way. Like asking for a raise was was a bizarre experience for me. Mm-hmm. Like it felt almost like I was a traitor to even ask for more money. Like, like at Riot, it felt like, and again, I'm not saying Riot did this to me, but this was kind of the mentality was I was in. It was like, almost like I was, fo- to, to, to find, if, if, I, if somebody found out that I was asking for money, they might be able to accuse me of being focused on the wrong thing. Or is this all about you, Aaron? Like, mm-hmm. and again, I, I think that I don't look at that as like Riot conditioning me that way. I've, I look at that as like a consequence of how wrapped up I was. It, it, it was it felt like family in a way, even though that that wasn't our culture. It, it, I I not family. I think I just identified myself so much with Riot, and I felt linked into it, and I and I just had difficulty separating. And so yeah, that being exposed to that culture at at BNN and and on Nook really made me go like, wow, I have to advocate for myself as a professional. Like I have to like 
understand what my capabilities and what my strengths and weaknesses are. And then there has to be some kind of a negotiation and that's okay. And I think I also became for the first time, okay with the idea that like sometimes you have to leave a company and it doesn't mean that that company's bad. And it doesn't mean that like you have a horrible experience, but sometimes you just, you've outgrown something at least for the time being, and you have to try something else. And that, that doesn't mean that the other party was bad. Right. Although it might feel bad while it's happening. Mm. I felt really bad walking away from riot. Um, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to this in their personal relationships with a friend or a girlfriend or boyfriend. It's like that person can be amazing, but sometimes it just stops working, you know, and, and you, you outgrow it. And so I think I just became infused with a lot of these concepts for the first time. And I saw a bunch of other people who already got that stuff. Like weirdly, when I interact with BNN employees and Silicon Valley workers, they got that stuff. That stuff was implicit to them. That was part of their mm-hmm. culture. Like most people at Riot, I knew a ton of people at Riot who had the same symptoms I did of having a, an identity way too wrapped up, like maybe to an, un, to an unhealthy point at times with the company and the culture, right? Uh, but no, like I feel like nobody really was at risk of that at, uh, at, at, on Nook. Um, and again, I never worked at Facebook or Google. It's possible these other companies are more like Riot in that way. I don't know. But um, so that that was a big kind of uh, realization for me was viewing myself as an independent professional separate from the company that I was working for. Like, so I want to I want to ask really now, there's something that's in my mind and maybe it's a selfish question, but you're leading now a type of people who hold a bunch of very different things implicit you've Mm -hmm. shown up you've seen it you've seen it in in the lunch conversation you've seen it in in the 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 product choices they make um and and you've maybe early on recognized like this isn't actually maybe initially like this is wrong and then initially eventually like that's different this is different okay i'm now leading a different type of person what was that like for you as someone who was that that leader and like I'm trying to get these people to something, to some some place. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the first teams I worked with, um, I worked with two teams at, at uh, Barnes while I was there. Well, three teams actually, but the two teams I worked the most with were the content ingestion team. And this was the team where um, new publishing information like books and stuff would actually be sucked into this ingestion engine and spit out into the catalog, which was the biggest literary catalog in the world, Barnes and Nobles. I don't know if it still is, but at the time it was. Mm. So huge, huge. So this was basically like a, a processing plant that would take all the data and turn it into books, digital books. And uh, I, when I was working with that team, I saw, I, I was being overwhelmed, like I said, with how different things were and how different the they thought. and. Again, whether out of naivete or passion or thinking I was right and that Barnes didn't get it or whatever, I don't know. But I went in and I was like, there's more that I can show these people. There, there's a whole different mm-hmm. side to work that they haven't seen. And I turned my team, my ingestion team, into a scrum team. And I had three engineers on it. And I was struck by how little they were listened to about what the problems were and what solutions might be employed. Like all the data I had about what challenges are we pursuing or what do we need to focus on or what's important was all from like management types that I was interacting with. They're like, Aaron, let me sit you down and explain to you everything that's wrong with ingestion and what we need to focus on. And they had all these assumptions about how long it was gonna take, what the difficulties were. And again, the engineers themselves had contributed almost nothing to that or very little to that because the managers prided themselves on being engineers and being able to figure that stuff out on their own. And I didn't know any of that stuff. Like I was no engineer. So I just sat down with the actual contributors themselves and I said, what do you guys think? Like, what do you, like, here's the problems that we're seeing. Like, what do you guys think we could do? And I was shocked almost immediately. They were, at first they struggled with that. They had never really had a manager sit down. I was a technical program manager. They had really never sat, had any manager sit down and just open the space up 
and like solicit that kind of information from them. And they were extremely shy about it initially. Like the first, those first couple meetings were like incredibly difficult because they were so programmed to wait for me to tell them what to do. Like even down to the detail, like here's how you need to build this thing. They just weren't familiar with a model where I was just like, Hey, I don't know what we should do. What do you guys think? Like, and when I finally, and, and I start, I realized that that incongruency was there. And I, and then I started trying to pull that out of them. I'd be like, I need you guys to contribute to this. Like I want, you guys are the experts. I would say that all the time. Tell me what you think. And almost overnight, once they started communicating their ideas, the backlog was shrinking. Priorities were becoming more clear, like things that we were damn convinced in the management circle were going to take us six months to complete. They had found solutions to that were going to take a couple weeks to do. And they were clean and elegant solutions. And all that it took was just creating space for them. And they naturally did that. These people who probably had not worked in many jobs where they were able to do that naturally did that. And that was, I think, the first time I really saw my own values in an environment where they shouldn't have worked, really mm. like bearing fruit. And, 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 and that was, I think, the first time I truly saw agility and what agility can do and what like a human centric management style where you actually trust the people that work for you can do. And I was absolutely blown away. Like so much of the difficulty and the confusion and the politics just melted away just from that change. And they loved it. They were so inspired. They became more inspired with their work because they felt more invested in it. Like they felt like I invited them to care. I invited them to take a stake in what was happening. And, and, and I, I just, that made it more rewarding for me and for them. And I think that that actually, I was, I was so worried that I, I wasn't going to be able to make an impact there. But I think in a very short time, the impact became very clear, like much quicker than I expected. Um, mm. I want to, I want to dive into the question you said, like it shouldn't have worked. And immediately I started thinking about incentives and what's going on mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, when you say it shouldn't have worked, like, what does that, what does that mean for you? Um, when I say it, like, again, and I'm, I'm kind of um, exposing my own bias at that time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, there, I think there's conventional wisdom, which is like, you, you, you know, you already have to be predisposed to this or you already have to get this or, uh, but, but I think that the, the, the thing I was trying to touch on, I think there's something more natural and more human there about autonomy, mastery, purpose. You know, we talk about those three things mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that it's, there is setting up a culture and setting up incentives. And I was doing those things, I think in minor ways, like I changed the, the, the example I gave where they, they were shy to tell me their ideas was because they had been incentivized differently prior to that. And I changed that incentive. I said, no, 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 no. You need to do this. Like, I'm not asking you to do the work that I tell you to do. I'm asking you to tell me what work you think we should do. And that's an important part of your job. Like I changed that incentive. So that I think invited them to do that. But the reality is, is once they did that, it immediately resonated like that. And that's not always the case. Not everyone's like that, but I think most people are like that actually. And that was my takeaway from that. And, and that was a very powerful lesson where I stood back and I was like, whoa, I think that's where it went from like, wow, this is a really cool new way of doing things that I enjoy to like, holy shit, this is game changing. Like how, and, and how is nobody doing this? Like what's, what's wrong with us that we seem so set on this like hierarchical draconian model. Like I, I don't understand like, and it felt good to have enough compassion for those people. It felt good to trust them. And then to have them show me that they were more than worthy of that trust. I was excited by that. It mm. was, it was, it was like, it was like something, a truth that I already believed was proven to me. You mm. know what I mean? And so that, that was powerful. Yeah. And, um, 
it sounds like you actually brought with you a lot of incentives based on the values that you had Mm -hmm. and they guided a lot of your decisions. I'm curious for somebody that was in your role that perhaps had a different background, what would your incentives have been from an external perspective from the, from the organization? You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, I don't think I realized this until you just asked me this question, but like, I think actually I didn't feel a lot of external pressure uh, I, I saw what most people were being being incentivized by. Like I saw the way the organization worked and the way that senior leadership interacted with middle management. I saw all this stuff and the way developers were treated on the average team. So I saw the ex- incentive structure that was in place, but I almost felt like I was outside of it. Mm. I think part of I think part of it was I didn't want to be a part of it. I, I I was just like I don't believe in that. And I felt, and it wasn't like a, ew, get away from me. It was like, I'm going to change this. I'm, I'm, I have a, there, like, I'm, I, I want to go a better path. Like I want to do this differently. And you guys hired me to do this differently. That was actually part of why I was hired. Um, but mm. interestingly enough, within two weeks after I joined my manager quit, the guy who hired me. And then two weeks after that, his manager quit. So I was actually in this very weird place where I was just floating around. I didn't have a manager for over two months. Like I just was just continuing wow. to get a paycheck from the system, but like I didn't have like one-on-ones and I was still doing work. And I, and, but I was like actually free to go about my business and people knew which teams I was on, like my other partner leaders and stuff. But like I had no real accountability <laughs> at the organization. And it was just because this huge reorg happened like immediately after I showed up and like it was just like management was shuffling power around and recarving the borders and the districts. And they were all debating that and the, the process changed and all this crazy stuff was happening. And meanwhile, I'm just running my like three teams and, you know, just accountable only to myself, I guess. Um, it was, was, it was stressful? really interesting. It, it was really stressful. Um, it was stressful because I had a very strong alignment with my manager from the onset about like what I was going to be doing, what I was going to focus on. And he was going to advocate for me in an environment where I knew it would be hard for people to change. And my ideas mm. would be threatening at times. So when he just disappeared two weeks later, I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> how's, how's this going to work? Like I'm, I'm either going to have to conform or I'm probably, you know, going to get fired or whatever. And the opposite happened actually. The more convicted I was and the more I focused on what I thought was important, the more the better reputation I developed and the more positive relationships I I made. Um so uh yeah it was uh it was an interesting experience. So yeah I didn't feel a lot of the I didn't feel personally impacted by the incentive structure a lot. I actually felt like I was outside of it trying to almost create my own little bubble where things worked the way I thought that they should. Mm-hmm. So, so what then? What came? What came next? Right? You've you've shown up now. You've been there um, some number of weeks or, or months. This reorganization is happening. You're without a manager. You're leading your three teams. You've converted them into uh, like I would say a higher stage of agility um, in terms of how they're how they're working and thinking. Like what was yeah. what happened? Uh, I would say this this is probably about three four months in now, and this leads us to kind of. Um, a, a pivotal inflection point in my experience at, at, at Nook, but also Nook's experience as a company. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, weirdly, we moved into the old Xerox offices in Palo Alto, which are these just unbelievably gorgeous offices in like the pristine green areas of Palo Alto. Just like, it's like a hot place. It's like shit happened here. Like Steve Jobs walked through these offices, you know, like that was, it was really hot. And it was like, there was this view of expansion and like things are, we're going to really invest in this. And then all of a sudden overnight, like literally within a couple of weeks after we moved there, you could just tell the entire organization just started to crumble. And it was, mm. it was so, the only reason it was apparent was because it was happening all around you reorg after reorg after reorg after reorg layoffs here layoffs there layout like just just it was it was chaos and it was like hard to get anything done because there were so many management reshuffles like i i like i mean i had four managers in eight months at barnes and that's including the time i had two and a half months without a manager like that's insanity 
You know what I mean? Like that just shows you how much stuff was just being moved and rejiggered and okay, this org needs to go to this guy and that's over him on the learning section. And then, you know, I had multiple VPs that were like asking me to come join their section. Like they were, they were consolidating, you know, and, and just, it was, it was, uh, it was crazy. Like, and I'd never seen that. I'd only, I'd seen the opposite, right? Like an organization just like blowing up, like almost mm. be constantly five steps too big for its ability to handle that. And this was like the decay, the collapse. And uh, so that was a very unique experience as well. And honestly, that was just like you, you, it, it did very much feel like you were kind of along for the ride because there was so much tectonic shifting at the top. And it got to the point too, where like, I remember having a conversation with a VP where I was like, Hey man, like I want to roll out like a wider agility, uh, initiative to this whole group. And, and I can do training and stuff like that because I, um, I moved under my last boss at Barnes, uh, and she was really, really cool. Um, and she was like, Hey Aaron, you really understand this stuff. I want you to teach people how to do this. I want you to like train our developers and train our program managers. So I started to put in place a plan to do that, but I had to get, uh, approval from another VP. And, and I remember when he said, Aaron, I love this stuff. These are all great ideas, but I can't, I don't have the, like, I can't approve this. And I was shocked to hear that because the only person above him was William, the CEO. And so I was like, well, who, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, we bring all this stuff to William and then we review these one by one. And that was when I realized that like, due to the nature of the way that the organization worked and like how sort of centralized authority was at that time, and it probably not, not unrelated to how much change was happening, um, I wasn't actually gonna be able to really get anything done. And so, and I think the ultimate incentive there was kind of just to go along for the ride. Um, and I mean, we're talking really like the last six to eight weeks, but I think like that conversation was the moment I decided to leave. Um, I, mm. I didn't recognize it as that at the time, but like now I look back and I can see clearly, I was like, well, if the CEO has to like rubber stamp decisions at this level, um, like I'm probably not gonna be able to like really enact any meaningful change, um, at least not right now, so. so I want to go back just a smidge. You're like three to four months in, um, and suddenly you you describe it as this decay starts happening, like mm -hmm. things start falling apart mm -hmm. and manifesting in all kinds of ways. What grounded you as an individual and as a professional? I don't think I felt grounded, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think I think I was terrified. I remember being terrified through a lot of that because I was so outside of my element. I was so. I didn't know the people I was working with that well anymore because most of the people I knew well had quit mm -hmm. or, or would quit in short order. Um, there was nothing was stable. Everything was changing all the time. Who was working who, who reported to who, you do, did we have money? Were we being successful? Were we gonna be okay? Were we gonna get a new influx of cash from BNN? Like, you know, how many devices were we selling? Did we get that contract in China Like, what, or India? Like, what, I, I, it was just, it was all, all so unstable. And I feel like most people that I knew that were competent already had like one foot out the door at that point. So it, it, it was really scary because I did feel like I had sort of made a bet on this. In my mind, I had made a bet on this, not just with my job, but also with my career trajectory and moving to San Francisco from LA and like all this life change. And it just felt like I was standing on quicksand. So I was, I didn't feel grounded. I think that this is one of the more stressful periods of my life. I remember being really, really stressed out and really mm. scared. Just like, what does this mean? Did I screw up? Was this the worst decision I ever made? Um, I now look back at it as like one of the most positive experiences I've ever had as far as like the learning and growth that I got from it and like the awareness that I got from it. But at the time I was scared shitless, man. Like I just... Mm -hmm. I was just trying to do focus as much as I could on adding value every day and try not to think too much about the other stuff. So, which is interesting because that almost takes us back to, you know, just being a mercenary again, right? It's like, that mm, was my first yeah. exposure to like internalizing that mindset myself was like, 
yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, it's just a job. And like, I'd never thought like that ever. So like, and I almost had to just to find some security to like remove myself from the chaos a little bit, you know? What was the major one or some number of things that you feel you did learn in that period? I think I always viewed people as an extension of the organization. And I think I saw an environment where the organization was an extension of the people for the first time. Talk more about that. Um, I think that I, I, the, the, the individual relationships with people, you know, I never realized this until just now, but like I actually had trouble remembering a lot of people's names at Riot. I interacted with so many different people and I would have trouble mm-hmm. remembering their names. And I'd be like, I worked with that guy for three years and I can't remember his name. But to me, he was a rioter first. You know what I mean? Mm. At, at Barnes, it was like, no, Jim, I'm going to be friends with you after this is all over. Like I could see a bigger context in which that relationship expanded past the tenure of my role at that company. Mm. And that, that, I, that might sound weird, but that was novel for me. Um, and that, that was, I think I've, I came to like value the individuals in a different, see them in a different light and value them in a different way. Not that I didn't value their, you know, them as people before, but it was, it was all kind of mixed up in one bucket now where it's just like at Barnes, it was like, no, I learned that those relationships would persist past my time at the company. And that was, that was a novel idea. Um, another thing I learned is that I think at Riot, it was so easy to get things done. Like if you were culturally aligned and you had a good idea, you just, everyone would just get aligned. Like, like the culture was so pristine that like when a good idea came up and we we're like, we would just be like, we should do that. And people would just mobilize and just get it done almost immediately. Like a team would just appear and start doing it and be mm. motivated and like on topic. Like I remember managing the teams back in those days was like you had as a junior producer managing some of these managing quote unquote, some of these see these guys and gals was like a joke. Like they just managed themselves. You didn't really need to do anything. You know what I mean? Um, but Oh, it, I was thinking about um, like the negotiation and the political element, like uh, politics were always this dirty thing at Riot. Like like and again, there, politics exist at every organization and they're not always bad. Um, there can be positive, healthy politics, but um, it's part of how we negotiate with each other as human beings. Uh, but I I I always I didn't have any of those skills, like literally did not have those skills when I came out of Riot. And I valued the fact that I didn't have them. I was like, you should never need to do that. You should never need to like convince three VP guys that your idea is good. Like if your idea is good, they should just know that it's good. And if it's culturally aligned, they should just do it. They should just say, yes, that's the way it should work. It's easy, man. And (laughs) wow, what a wake up call at like a normal company, (laughs) right? It's like, no, Aaron, you actually have to convince people like that's part of your job. And I sucked at it so bad. And one of the main reasons why was because I had this like bizarre, childish, impetuous, moralistic, like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to make you a PowerPoint presentation. If you don't get it, then I shouldn't have to explain it to you. And, and it, it was so stupid. And, and I, I picked up on those skills so fast and I really came to value them because I saw what benefit it can have when somebody's skeptical and when somebody feels uncomfortable with your idea and you still manage to get them to understand anyway and like how much more powerful that is and how and those skills and again if you would have asked me i would have been those skills will be useless if i ever go back to riot those skills were unbelievably valuable even at riot um and uh and that was that was life-changing that was formative that was a huge learning point so can can you talk to me about like you mentioned you first got there and you did not appreciate the politics you didn't it was like this is wrong and i'm i'm happy to be bad at this and what were the actual like can you think of examples of like that stopped me from x or that whatever 
Oh, I mean, uh, this is a particularly kind of like cheeky example, but we used to have these like sort of like initiative lead meetings where there'd be like 40 people in the room or 30 people. And there'd be like a couple like exec, like big wig, big wigs. And we would all like show our reports, right? Like, how's your report going, Aaron? And I'd be like, well, my team's blah, 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 blah. And then we'd like kind of go around the circle. And there were opportunities in those meetings to really put forward like a good idea. And, but you but you had limited time. The platform was not for that inherently. So you had to like find a good entry point. You had to like have a, a line that you were ready to say, and you had to like appeal to things that would get people's interests. And it may not be the things you would think. Like it can't be just like, guys, this is clearly valuable and we should do this. Like you had to like incentivize them to come along. Like you, you, had, to, you had to consider like, okay, I'm making this name up, but like Jim, he's the exec running this meeting. Like, what does he really want? Like, what's he trying to get out of this meeting? Like, what are his concerns? Mm. And then meet him halfway on that. Like, pr like present the idea in a way that, that meets his incentive too. And I'd never done that before. And just those little things of like, you could get an idea out. And if you got it out in the right way in one of those meetings, you, you, it, it like almost like the slow clap, like everyone would just be like, great idea, Aaron. Like, just like, and I saw Darko do it and I saw other, other folks that other like really talented um, leaders do it as well. And it was a whole skill set again, that I, I developed from scratch at, at, at Nook and BNN. I just didn't have it before. And in the beginning, I remember being in those meetings just being like, this is so dumb. Like the whole meeting should just be about him soliciting ideas from his team. Like, isn't that the whole point of leadership? It's just like, letting that go and just being like, there's still a huge opportunity here and there is a way to succeed here. It's just different than, than what you're used to was very eye opening. So I'm going to ask a, a, a broader question, but what you just said kind of triggered it. This was such a transition and a cultural shift for you. And you just said like, Hey, there's a thing that I had to let go of in that context. When you look back at your overall time at, at Barnes as contrasted with your previous experiences, um, what, what would you say was the most important thing that you let go of? I don't have a lot of confidence that I, that I pristinely know what the answer to that question is. But the first thing that popped up in my head was letting go of the idea that a job can provide you with an identity. That really having an identity is something that you and you alone can, can create for yourself. And it can be whatever you want it to be, but you have to choose it. Mm. It's a path that you can only walk down. And you can choose to work at a place or be in a relationship or have a friend or have a side project that 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 separate line happens to go on your path, like the paths are conjoined for a time, but that if your path is merely a manifestation of another path that already exists and you're constantly trying to bring your path in alignment with that other path, then you have, I think you've missed out on one of the primary joys of life, which is to really decide who you are. And I think that I, I loved I, I always have loved Riot Games and it's always going to be a part of me. But I think that was the change was making coming to the realization and making the subsequent decision that Riot would always be a part of me, but I wouldn't always be a part of Riot. That was a huge mental shift for me. Mm. Um, and that that opened up the world a lot, I think for me to like honor my own values and honor my own path and, and learn like what I liked and what I thought was important and who I wanted to be. Um, that was transitional for sure. And then kind of re reverse of the question. Um, what is the one, so if that's what you let go of, what is the one thing that you took away or the, the thing that comes to mind from the experience at Barnes? There's a lot, but one, one that comes to mind is like, it's not magic that leads to success. Um, it is a hyper complex confluence of the individual humans involved, the culture, the product, the money, the customers, all of these things 
compound and create infinite complexity that leads to an infinite possible set of outcomes. And that there's not, it's not just like if we just do these three things right, like we're gonna win. Um, I think at Riot, I saw such unbridled success, like overwhelming success and, and a company that did a, most of the right things. Um, but I think at Barnes, I, I, I started to realize how all the different possible permutations of people, organizations, process, patterns, culture, leadership, all, uh, products, all this stuff, and realize that like so many companies fail. And, uh, and, and, and it's not, it's not a religion. It's not, it's not like, it's not magic. It just, um, there is, there's a lot to learn here and there's a lot of humility that you need to have when you're approaching this stuff. And the people are really important, like the human beings that are contributing to this stuff. And also that, um, there's always a better way to do something always. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how successful you think you are, there's always a better way. Chris, you've been uh, quiet. Um, I'm just curious what what's top of your mind from a from from thoughts or question or or whatnot around this. Yeah, Aaron, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, I actually, I, I have a lot of things I wanted to interject along the way, but you were on such a good roll that I I just didn't. You know, one of the things that. Um, I thought about early on to kind of get back to one of your earlier things. When you first walked in the door at Barnes and you saw people reading on their Kindles, right? A a similar anecdote happened over at Microsoft at one point when a lot of people on the campus, you know, up here in Redmond, Washington, they were using iPhones all the time. And Microsoft at, at that time was trying to ship their own phone. You know, they had the, the Microsoft phone that they would, they bought Nokia and they were trying to ship their own product. And lots of people were using iPhones. And Microsoft did something similar that Barnes. They said, here, we're going to give you guys all a high-end Microsoft phone that we've made. Go ahead and use it. And then they noticed, Microsoft noticed that virtually no one was, was using it. They were all using their iPhones. So they actually did a company-wide edict for the, the, the big campus saying, you are not allowed to use your iPhones on campus. You have to use wow, that's the Microsoft crazy. phone that we gave Whoa. you. Yeah. yeah. And, and then um, it was interesting because I, I know three or four people that actually had three people that I've talked to about this that still work at Microsoft even today. And they said, no one followed that, that edict. No one did it. They continued using their iPhones, basically saying, look, I work for you. I get a paycheck from you, but I'm you can't tell me what phone I can use. It's yeah. my own personal device. You know, if I hmm. want to text my wife or get a text from my kid, I don't have to do it on your device. And they, uh, Microsoft lost that battle hard. Wow, and they, that's, and, cr- and they that's a crazy it. story. I've never heard that. That's, yeah, no, yeah. They, they lost. And actually, that was one of the key things, ultimately, that, that people that were, you know, in dev manager positions and up the line, they basically had to ask themselves, why? Why did we lose this battle so hard that even giving someone our top of the line phone, our employees, why do they still want to use Apple's product over ours? And that was one of the key things that actually got them to the point, not not right away, but a little ways down the line to them deciding to get out of that business. Mm. Because they said, we, we, we can't compete. We feel like we've got a great system, but we've got a great OS and our tech is good, but we're three years too late to the game. And you know people have entire ecosystems built around and Android and Apple now, and we, we can't compete in this space. So they mm. pivoted and they went to the, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff that they wound up doing. But yeah, that, when, you were, when you were bringing that up, that story came to mind that, you know, and my, my question to you was, did upper management see and notice that the employees at Barnes were using Kindles instead of Nooks within the scope of what you had visibility to at Barnes? Were there, were there you know, red flags anywhere? Were there fires burning going, oh my gosh, they're using Kindles instead of Nooks? And was there a sense of urgency within the organization to correct whatever was happening so that people would, would want to find their own internal products more attractive than the competitors? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I If there were red flags being raised, I, I wasn't privy to them. It's very possible there were. It's like, I mean, because I was there 
that this had gone on for years, so it's possible it was even a like a topic of conversation. Um, I had heard a couple mid-level managers crack jokes about it here and there, but like nothing, mm. n- nothing is like a hey, this is a problem we have to solve. Um, I can. I, I'm sort of getting into a little bit of speculation here, and there may be people that worked at on Nook that would disagree with me on this, but I always, I, I think when I saw the way that the average person or contributor or leader interacted with the Nook as a product, um, even when we were talking about like what we were prioritizing or what we wanted to change or like how we were going to compete, it was all always so technical and businessy. It just didn't, it didn't have flavor. It didn't have soul. You know what I mean? There was mm. no, there was no like Jobsian figure coming in and being like, we're going to change the world. And like, this is what the nook is. Like, this is why you use the nook. Like, let me paint you a picture of customers using the nook that like resonates with you that you under, like there wasn't any of that, that I remember. It was always like, what's the next project and where are we going to move these people? And how's the roadmap doing? And like, we need this, we've got this investment from Microsoft coming in potentially. And like, we need to do X, Y, Z. And, and it, and it was just like, it, it, it was all, it was like a giant project. You know what I mean? It was, it was like somebody identified, like a, did a SWOT analysis on a business opportunity and was like, we could, there's a market opportunity here. Inject $500 million and make the people do the stuff. And then boom, we now own 30% of the Amazon's market share. And again, I'm being really unfair probably to the people who like launched this, but like, and, and I'm, and I'm not at all saying that that's what was going through their heads or that they intended that to happen. I'll never know. Cause I, I never had a conversation with William or any of the senior leadership or anything, but like I, I just, that's how I felt as like a a soldier on the ground. You know what I mean? Like that's like, I was, I was, I felt very disconnected from the product itself and like the impact it was having on customers and like what it really meant to people or what it could mean to people. Like I didn't feel like I was exposed to that kind of information or that that was like a topic of conversation amongst my peers. Um, so, but that was just my experience. And, and again, there's mm-hmm. a lot that could go, go into that. So I, I hesitate to say that's the way that Nook was. Um, other people will have to decide for themselves who worked there and, and you know, um, based on their own experiences. So Sure. No, that, that's good. Um, the other thing that you touched upon, you said a phrase that, I, that really resonated with me based on my uh, most recent experience in corporate America, which was that the people in the organization were an extension of, of, of the organization itself rather than the other way around mm-hmm. the organization being extension of the people, you know, like human centric versus mm-hmm. organization centric. Yeah. Talk to me more about that. Cause it, I mean, I, I see based on what you're saying, there was a very stark contrast between what you saw at riot where the, the organizations were an extension of the, of the human component of, you know, who made up those organizations versus Barnes, where it was the other way around. Yeah. You've got this hierarchical structure. That to me is fascinating because I came from sort of the Barnes model in my most recent corporate experience. And I, that was one of the key factors that drove me out of the company mm. was that it was so hierarchical and, and uh, you know, these are the structures we have in place. You will conform to this or, or you will not function within this company. And it was the same thing where you had a bunch of VPs that all had to get permission from the top, from the from the CEO coming down, who were completely disconnected on a very fundamental level from the boots on the ground workers, mm-hmm. you know, down below, as opposed to Riot, where it sounds like, according to you, what you and Ben have talked about passionately, it was the other way around. You have all this talent and, you know, in some cases, they even manage themselves, as you said, when you were a junior producer coming up. So that that dichotomy, that... that um, that contrast is really fascinating to me. What what do you, what else can you elaborate about on that? Yeah, there's there's so much packed into that. I think um, when I think about people being an extension of the organization or the organization organization that being an extension of its people, I think there's there's an ang- a view angle on that. Like I don't look at either of those things and go like, oh well, one of these is uh, is a philosophy that's clearly better than the other. I think. I can see that there are certain things that come out of both that are good and certain things that come out of both that are 
that are maybe not great. And I, and I also think they're interesting in the sense that you can like look at you, that can be a frame that you look through. And I think what I realized was that coming from riot, I always viewed myself as an extension of the organization. Yeah. Like I, I always, I always viewed myself as a rioter first and as Aaron Smith second, if that makes sense. And, um, and I'm not sure if everyone else at riot felt that way. I'm sure some people did and some people didn't, depending on their background. I can imagine much more seasoned guys and gals like that had worked at many other companies probably did not necessarily have that necessarily have that view. Um, but when I was at Barnes, it was like almost like there was a, there was an, for, as an example, there was an element of like, hey, you want to know that guy because he crushed it at Google and he knows a ton of people at Motorola and Amazon and stuff. And like when this all blows over, like he could get us all our next job work. Like he's got some stuff in the works or he's, wow. he's thinking of a new startup. Like it was that kind of thing where it was like the organization like only existed because of the specific people that were involved there. So it was a very, di- I, w- I was exposed to a very different perspective that I hadn't seen before. And again, that's just one example. Man. That is that is fascinating. Yeah, because uh, they're not the, what you're saying there is that they didn't consider themselves in any way, shape, or form Barnes and Noblers first, and you know no. identity second. It no. was completely upside down. No, from yeah, that. yeah. And again, it, it it it's not to say that they didn't value the work that they were doing. They just very much viewed it as like, well, today I'm currently being compensated and incentivized to invest in this, and tomorrow that might change. And I'm okay with that. Um, and 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 it what there was no malice there. Um, I think for me it was just shocking because I'd never really looked through that lens before. And I think that that lens was helpful to me because when I went back to Riot, it helped me go like I'm choosing this. Uh, it's not like hmm. um, <laughs> actually it's um, it's funny when I when I came back and uh, I went through my second orientation. At Riot, when I came back, uh, Mark Merrill would do, uh, him and Brandon would do like a piece of every orientation for every new class, which I think is super cool, right? They would have FaceTime with every single rioter that was coming through the door. And they saw me in the class and Mark Merrill was like, the prodigal son has returned. And I was like, (laughs) oh God, no, don't say that. Um, And it it was just funny because again, it, it, it was that, again, that contrast between like, Aaron, welcome back into the fold. You know, versus like, mm. no, I, it's different now. Like, I love mm. this company. Mm-hmm. I really do. I love this company, but I'm coming back as Aaron now. And Aaron works at Riot now and he and he's happy about that and he's thankful for that. And, but it's there's there's two entities here. It's not just me being absorbed back into the mothership. <laughs> You know, and and again, he didn't mean it that way. He was just teasing. Right. But like it was an interesting kind of moment for me where I heard that. and I was like, oh, God, no, I I don't want to go back (laughs) there. You know, (laughs) we're we're wrapping up. uh, We're coming up on the end here. Um, We've just hit an hour. And so I want to ask you final question, Aaron. Okay. Do you still own a nook? (laughs) <laughs> you know what's yeah I don't I don't but you know what you know what's funny I feel like I actually did for a really long time but I and, and you know what's funny I it's also I I had two at one point and I feel like one of them I had to give back because I wasn't there for my full year and so when, like when I when I left they were like uh, we're going to need that starting bonus back and that nook and everything. It was very much like, a, like, Hey man, <laughs> you can't do that. You're this was, you were supposed to be here for a year. You can't, I literally left it like nine or 10 months and they were like, give it all back. Give us the keys, everything. <laughs> I was just like, okay. You have to wonder what they did with that returned nook. Like, did they give it to someone else or like, did it go in a box in a drawer and it's still somewhere oh, in Palo Alto man. or what happened to it? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it really is crazy. And I used it all the time to test and stuff at work. And uh, But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I do not own one anymore. I think I had the second one in a drawer, a dusty drawer somewhere for like several years after I left uh, Nook and I found it and it was like the battery was dead. And I was just like, I think I'm just going to chuck this thing. <laughs> I don't even know if it's supported. I like I, do, I actually don't. If you have a Nook today, I don't even know if it still works. It may. I I, I don't know. 
I have no clue. I know that that organization, like the, the Silicon Valley organization, no longer exists, as I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. And they outsourced everything or something like that. But yeah, somebody else probably knows the answer to that. All right. Well, um, thank you for sharing the story. Uh, that was actually super interesting. And again, one that we hadn't, it's really cool because it's one that we haven't talked about a ton. So even I, I got a lot of insight into what that was like for, for me, it was so interesting watching who you were when you left and who you were when you came back. Um, and they were two different professionals. Um, and in some sense, two different people. And this has been really, it's been a heck of a thing to learn about why, mm-hmm. why that, that happened. Um, so, so thank you. Um, and I think that that's it. We'll wrap it up. Thank you all for listening to the Valarin Perspective. Um, hope to hear from you next time. This has been the Valarin Perspective. Send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. Valarin, V-A-L-A-R-I-N, consulting.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.